0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this afternoon to the letter of Paul to the church at Rome. We'll read the first 11 verses of Romans 5 and the first 11 of Romans 6. There the Apostle Paul writes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, therefore, since we have been justified to face, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... then we turn to the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. under grace. We turn this afternoon to Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Last Sunday, we dealt with what it means that God is the great creator father. This time, we will go on to deal with God's providence, the continued rule and reign of God over our lives. Lord Say 10, what do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, little things, life is full of little things, getting up in the morning, dressing yourself, eating breakfast, going off to work or off to school, or otherwise staying home and working there, it's also ordinary and so routine. Our life is a composition of hundreds of minor matters. But then sometimes something major happens. Take this past week as an example. On Sunday last, our sister Dehan died in a very sudden and shocking manner. And then a few days later, our sister Fringe, the oldest member of our congregation, also died at the age of 96 years. And suddenly, any number of families in our midst had to deal with death, with passing, with sadness, and loss. And those are big things. However, for the most part, thankfully, life is not like that. Life is about small things, ordinary things, regular things, some would even say unexciting things. Yes, and as we reflect on all of those things, we do wonder at times whether or not God is also in these things. Is He really in the small stuff of life? Does He care? Can he be bothered? Is his hand in any of it? After all, he has a whole wide universe to take care of. He has a world full of sin and rebellion to contain. He has a struggling church to support. He has burdened saints to carry. So does the small stuff of our everyday lives really matter him. And what about the regular religious quote-unquote stuff, if I may call it that? This worship service this afternoon may be seen by some of you as big, but others would disagree and call it ordinary and routine. And what about this baptism? It may be special to this baby, to these parents and family. But for the rest of us, is it just one more baptism among many? Truly, what does God think about all this? Well, beloved, if we this afternoon look at it from the perspective of God being the God of providence, then we need to say, we need to confess, and we need to believe that all of this Today, tomorrow, it all matters to Him. For what does the biblical doctrine of providence teach us? It teaches that our God, our great creator God, the God of Lord's Day, Nine, the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is so full of love that His care encompasses everything and stretches everywhere. Well, you can see that already in that list that you find in answer 27. What's not in that list? Little minor items like leaf and blade. Regular items like rain and drought. Common items like food and drink. Ordinary items like health and sickness. Our daily life is in this list. And as well, the negative, ordinary things of life are in it too. Things like drought, barren years, sickness, poverty. Our God not only takes care of us when it comes to the nice and the pleasant things of life, but also when it comes to the tough and the hard things of life. Indeed, he's always there, and his hand is in everything. The Catechism, according to the Scriptures, finally says, Indeed, all things, all things are under God's care and control. Nothing happens to us by chance. God is in all of it. Now, does that make it easy to figure out? Not at all. I think, for example, why is it that so many young people have died in Carmen, Manitoba over the last number of years? Why does a typhoon ravage Burma or Myanmar? Why does an earthquake take a 100,000 lives in China? Indeed, why does God allow disasters to happen? And of course we can always point to sin and to the fall and to sin and we can remind ourselves that we live in a broken world which really needs fixing very badly. We can also remind ourselves that we live in a rebellious world, a world that so often ignores, blasphemes and insults God. Indeed, there are ample reasons to point out as to why this world is so full of sadness. But still, don't you sense that the ultimate reason as to why God allows it, permits it, even sends it, is beyond us? We just do not know everything about why God runs this world the way that he runs it. There's mystery here. Something that transcends us. There's a lot that we just don't know. And yet, that shouldn't intimidate us, nor should it necessarily discourage us. No, it should compel us to wrestle with the providence of God, to dig deeper and to seek to learn, to learn about providence, and to learn from providence. And as a result, we do not give up on this doctrine. We don't hold up our hands and say, who knows, who cares? No, this afternoon we want to look for its benefits, for its blessings, For in addition to its questions, there are many. So I preached to you this afternoon on the theme, the prophet of providence. We're going to see that in times of adversity, the prophet is steadfastness or patience. In times of prosperity, the prophet or the benefit is thankfulness. In times of eternity, the benefit is hopefulness or confidence. Well, beloved, if you want to know about the benefit or the profit of God's providence, then you need to look very closely at answer 28. And and there you find a marvelous distillation of all kinds of scriptural data and insights. And why you can say that the authors of the Heidelberger have taken the subject of providence in hand and they have searched from one end of the scriptures to the other in order to gain the necessary wisdom and insight. And in the process, they have saved you and I from a lot of time, a lot of reading, and a lot of mental exertion. And as well, they have produced a wonderful summary and a most comforting answer. And what's the first part of that summary or of that answer? Well, it is this, that when it comes to God's rule and reign over all things, the first thing that believers need to learn is to be patient in adversity or to be steadfast in stressful times. When the going, in other words, gets really tough, the faithful are called to bear up, to be long-suffering, to take the punches, to keep their cool, and naturally, that's easier said than done. Well, let's face it, when adversity strikes, the normal human reaction is to get impatient, to lash out, to blow up, to perhaps even vent one's spleen. And that's what many people do. In the midst of adversity, they lose it. They just cannot cope when things go wrong in their life. Now such a reaction should not be greeted with scorn on our part. It's not so that Christians are a superior breed or a breed apart. And neither is it so that Christians never lose it. We need to emphasize with the struggle of other believers uh, and we need to emphasize as well with the struggles of the children of this world. But nevertheless, at the same time, we must never forget that we are children of the Heavenly Father. In the midst of pain and suffering, we need to remember our identity, our adoption, and thus find our bearings. We need to remind ourselves of who we are, who is there for us? What we've been given. Think of this, this baptism. We're covenant children. God, the triune God is there for us every day. And what have we not been given in terms of forgiveness and salvation? And all the rest of God's beautiful gifts. We need to find, beloved, in other words, our rest and our confidence and certainty in the knowledge that it is our Father who rules and who reigns, who ordains and works out everything ultimately for our good. I said ultimately. It may not happen right away, but it will. In the end, it surely will. And if you want proof of that, well, you can turn almost anywhere in the scriptures this afternoon. Let's look, for example, briefly at at Daniel. You ever thought about Daniel? A man in tough straits. He's captured in Israel, carted off to Babylon There he's forced to serve in the Babylonian court, trained for three years, put to severe test. And thereafter he and the other wise men in Babylon are about to be put to death for failing to tell the king his dream. And then he's compelled to put his life in danger again by interpreting a disastrous dream that King Belshazzar had. And finally, yet another king by the name of Darius throws him into a den full of lions and his enemies expect that he will be eaten before breakfast. So what do we have here? We have here a man whose life is repeatedly threatened. We have here a man who is little more than a glorified slave and who is forced to serve one king after another. We have here a man who is constantly being watched and tried and tested. Talk about a life filled with tension and uncertainty. And talk about a man who in a way we would say has a right to complain. Most people would long ago have rebelled against all of these burdens and and fired off a few questions in the direction of the Lord. And they would have come up with many whys and perhaps even a few no's. And what about throwing some bitterness, gall, and sourness into the mix as well? Well, beloved, there is none of that. With Daniel... He appears to have been convinced that God called him for this special and difficult task in life. And indeed, he accepts it, and through it all, he shows that his devotion to the Lord never slackens. Daniel knows how to serve the Lord in adversity. He knows how to serve him Without a big mouth, without a huge ego, without a host of hesitations, complaints, and refusals, Daniel knows something about being steadfast no matter what. And the secret, the secret, beloved, is in the prey. But Daniel is always and also a man of prayer. He prays to God in the midst of all of his struggles. And he asks God for wisdom, for insight, for courage, for patience. And God gives it. And beloved, I dare say you and I can learn something from this. For one thing is sure in this life, and that is that for you and I, there will be times of testing. Scripture talks about times of discipline. For example, in the letter to the Hebrews, does it not say, for what son is not disciplined by his father? And if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. That's like saying adversity will come. You better count on it. You even need it. But of course the big question is how will you handle it? Will you give a worldly response to it? Will it make you mad? Will it turn you bitter? Or will it make you into a better person, a wiser believer, a more mature servant? The first prophet of providence is that adversity has a way of making God's people grow in the Lord. It has the ability to produce in all of us a harvest of patience steadfastness if we clothe our lives in prayer to God. But then, beloved, if the first prophet of providence comes in the form of increased wisdom and patience, the second prophet, it says here, has to do with thankfulness. And in that connection, you might think, well, this is an easy one. Learning to be patient in adversity, that's tough. But learning to be thankful in prosperity is a piece of cake. It's just so easy. At least that's what we assume. But our assumptions sometimes be so wrong. And here they truly are. And I can prove it. Turn, for example, to Luke chapter 17. There you have an account of one of the miracles that the Lord Jesus performed. It has to do with ten lepers, and probably the children in our midst will be familiar with it. And if not, the story goes something like this. The Lord Jesus is busy in his ministry. He's going toward Jerusalem, it says. And he's on the border between Samaria and Galilee. And he enters there into a certain village and he is met by ten lepers. And leprosy, as you may know, was probably the disease that was most dreaded in those days. Today, we reserve our greatest fears for cancer. Long ago, it was leprosy that was most feared. And why was it most feared? Well, in the first place, it attacked your extremities, like your fingers and your toes, so that you would lose all sense of feeling and pain. And now as much as we may hate pain, think about it, we need pain. We need the ability to experience pain, for example, to protect ourselves from things like fire and flame, from danger and injury. In the second place, this disease would eat away at your flesh, causing it to become inflamed, to fester, to die, and finally to fall off. Leprosy and disfigurement go hand in hand. Imagine yourself for a moment without your toes, without your fingers, without your ears, or without your nose. In the third place, leprosy turned you into a social outcast. It was deemed to be contagious and it placed you outside of the human community and it meant that no one would get near you, that people would call you names, they would throw stones at you, tell you to get lost. So it's a terrible disease, it's a kind of double disease. It ravages your body and it isolates your life. Well, in this story there are ten of these pathetic fellows. They see Jesus coming from a distance and they shout at him as necessary from a distance and they beg him for pity or for mercy. What does Jesus do Read the story. He does nothing. He doesn't go up to them, talk to them, touch them, tell them they have to jump through the following hoops in order to get healed. No, all he does is he tells them to go to the priests. And I'm sure that that caused a real debate among them. For in those days you only went to the priests as a leper if you were convinced that you were already healed. And then the priest would examine you and and decide whether or not you really truly were healed. Maybe he put you in isolation for a while. You know the routine. But why should these lepers bother to go to the priest? They still have leprosy. What a waste of time. Why go to the priest when you are still covered with sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Nevertheless, in the end, it appears they went. I suspect they went out of sheer and utter desperation. Why not go? What is there for us to lose? We're already dead men walking. And so they went. They followed The instruction of Jesus. Grudgingly, grumbling, no doubt. They followed it. And then it says, very simply. As they went towards the priests. They were healed. In other words, on the way to the priests. They were healed. How could that be? How could that happen? Who's ever heard of such a thing? Since when is simply going to the priest secure for leprosy? There's only one answer. And it has to be with Jesus. Jesus. It must be him. It must be his word that did it. It must be his power that healed them even from a distance. There isn't any other explanation. Well, what happened next? Not much. Not much at all. For look... Only one of them looked at himself, jumped up and down, went back, praised God with a loud voice, threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. Notice, only one went back. Only one Out of ten. How's that for thankfulness? How's that for praise and gratitude? And you and I thought thankfulness was easy? That's not the story that these nine healed lepers tell us. They tell the story of ingratitude, insensitivity, thanklessness, of receiving much but responding not at all. Disappointing indeed. But also something else ironic. For look. Look what it says about the man who came back and gave thanks. It says in verse 16 that he was a Samaritan. And that means that of all of those ten lepers, he was the last one you would expect to come back, and the first one you'd expect to forget about being healed by a Jew. After all, this man belongs to a most despised and hated people. He has two strikes against him, for he is a leper and a Samaritan. But he comes back. Now what does that imply? Is it perhaps so that thankfulness is much more likely to appear in the lives of those who have suffered much. And if that is the case, then all of us who have been raised in Christian homes, fed in the Christian church, educated in Christian schools... Always having experienced peace, affluence, freedom, and leisure. All of us are being warned here. We who have received the most are the least likely to express thankfulness. To be thankful for receiving so very much. So, beloved, there is a warning here. There's a second great prophet to providence. But while it may be reckoned by us as the easiest, it may in the end prove to be the hardest. And yet in spite of that, don't let it discourage you. But rather, may it be an extra incentive for you. An extra incentive to say to yourself, in, in the face of all of my blessings and all that I have received in this life, I am going to cultivate a thankful heart and a grateful spirit. I am going to remember to count my blessings. And with the help of God, I'm not going to ignore being thankful in the midst of great prosperity and great blessing. And so, beloved, there is adversity, there is prosperity, and there's one more thing, briefly. It leaves us with the future, the days to come, or with eternity, if you will. So what's profitable thing does the providence of God teach us with respect to the future? Well, here the catechism reflecting what the scripture teaches says the prophet has to do with confidence, with hope and hopefulness. And if you want an illustration for that, we can go right away to Romans 8. And, and most of you, I think, are familiar with it. There you, you find Paul speaking in the most upbeat of terms. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Paul looks at the future and the future for him isn't very bright but still he is just so filled with conviction and certainty. He's absolutely sure that no matter what comes down the freeway he has nothing to fear. And why? Well, because he says nothing and no one and not anything can separate us From the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ. Will see me through to the end. Christ will cause me to triumph. Christ will bring me to glory. Christ will turn me into a super conqueror. And because Christ will do all of this. Why should I live in fear? Why should I dabble in superstition. Why should I live timidly? So, beloved, there's the third great prophet of providence. It's knowing that your future in Christ is secure. It's the awareness that everything in this life may be against me, but if Christ is for me, and I shall prevail. What a great and a sure hope we have. What a great and sure hope these parents have as they raise their daughter in the fear of the Lord. What a great and sure hope we all have as we walk toward the future in the fear of the Lord. Beloved this is a difficult doctrine but it's not without profit galore profit in terms of steadfastness in terms of thankfulness in terms of hopefulness go out live it in the strength that god provides